Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast with Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. We take an historical and sociological look at various issues and how they have laid the foundation for the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we examine how whiteness is actually a political group driving influence in ways that perpetuate white supremacy. While the initial establishment of this political group was intentional, the maintenance of that group has become more of a habit. Keeping in mind that before there's a focus on blackness, on brownness, on any of the other categories, the initial focus has to be on whiteness because the power of whiteness is that it's not marked. It's unmentioned. For example, in in talking uh, with one person about the segregation at their high school, they said, well, the whites and Asians kind of hung in together or hung out together. You know, the Asians kind of came into the white, but the the black and uh, Latinx people, they sort of segregated themselves. So even though you get white mentioned in something like that, white is not the actor. The Asians came into the white. They were the actor, the racial actor in this case. And the black and brown people segregated themselves, their choice, their action. The white did nothing in that circumstance that led to segregation. And so what we're trying to do here is sort of see the unseen white actor. So one of the variations of this is an idea that whiteness is natural. Um, There's a broader idea here that every group would rather just hang out with its own. And when you look around, my goodness, it's true. People tend to live with their own. Now, the, the way that this all works from a power standpoint is that you have to flip how the world actually happens you don't have the sense of, hey, we've created this world. And as we look upon this world, it's very much as as we've created it. Instead of that, we look on the world and say, wow, look at what happens in the world without, without us doing a single solitary thing. That's the naturalness of people hanging out with their own. That's the naturalness of white people just happening to be with other white people. And so the work then is to sort of see, hey, the naturalness of all of this is constructive. The idea of who is your own and who is not your own is constructed. The idea of who counts as white and who does not count as white, and even who somewhat counts as white is constructed. Biology does not know that you've created these categories, that you've claimed to be biological. Nature does not know that you've created these racial groups, that you claim to be natural. And what we know is that over history, over time, and over geography, over space, that these groups change. There are no Asians in Asia. There are Laotians and Japanese and Chinese and Koreans 
And the idea that you can simply lump them together over there is offensive. Over here, it can become a category. But that, that's not how biology works. Biology doesn't work by your geog geographical space. It doesn't work by your historical space, where in this country, you might have had a generation that were Negroes and another generation that were colored and another generation that was black and another generation that was African-American. These are not natural categories. These are political categories. They are categories of power and resource distribution. Since the beginning. So for example, with whiteness, because we do want to start there. Whiteness is created by explicit design. Um, most historians use the example of Bacon's Rebellion as the place where this all got started because you had to keep workers from getting together and taking back their exploited gains. And the way to do that was to divide them from each other. You might imagine it as this table with all the wealth of the country on top of it. And originally we're talking about things like tobacco and cotton and sugar, which were drugs all around the world. Now cotton was just something that people fancied that they had to have, you know. And there's this huge amount of wealth on top of the table. And there's very few people around the table enjoying the wealth. And on the ground are all of these smaller people who cannot reach those chairs and cannot see the table. What they see are crumbs falling off that table. And they're trying to get all the crumbs they can. They think the crumbs are the riches. And so it's clear to those at the table that if you let all of these people below come together, they'll be able to climb up on the table. They'll be able to get the wealth. And so you create whiteness as a way to stop them from getting together. You tell them within whiteness, we're going to do all of these things to those that are not white. And we're not going to do them to you. You will have that privilege. You will have that advantage. And the things are really terrible and they're visible and you can see them. And those within whiteness feel grateful not because they got anything on the top of the table, but simply because they weren't put in cages, they weren't separated from their families, they weren't sold off to distant places. They thought, wow, we are better than those people there. And instead of looking up at the table for what might be up there just to get a glimpse of it, instead, they assumed the people at the table were their people and they looked out amongst the other people on the floor and said, we've got to hold them back. Otherwise they will get our crumbs. So whiteness is the politics of how you manage who gets those crumbs and who gets the punishments. So at different times, at different places, different people have been included within the equation. You know, as you come to the 1840s to 1880s, that wave of immigration from different places in Europe, 
those people initially come over, the Irish, the Italians, other Catholic groups, they might be Hungarians, they might be Czechoslovakians, they might be Austrians or Germans. They eventually are going to settle the Middle West of the country. And over time, the Democratic Party realizes in order to maintain power, we need votes. And so they expand what's considered white. Because those people were not necessarily considered white. I mean, Czechoslovakians are not white necessarily, you know, just in pure terms. And the British would never have considered them in the same race. Um, certainly the Italians for a long time were not considered white. And that the Irish were not considered white, you know, is, is legend already. Um, but they make this sort of expansion in order to maintain power. And the Democratic Party is able to really maintain power from you know, the Compromise of 1877 through, you know, Fanny, Fanny Hammer in the, eight, in the 1960s. And then again, after World War II, understanding all the white rioting of World War I, there is an idea of sort of making sure that those coming back from World War II don't have a reason to riot. And so you get the GI Bill, which is, of course, the greatest affirmative action program the country's ever seen, you're effectively going to create a middle class. And you're going to add to the European immigrants of the last wave, uh, Asian Americans, in certain ways, in certain places, Jewish Americans, again, like the Asian Americans conditionally, but that they would all live in suburbs. And the suburbs were the place that sort of defined the whiteness of that generation, another expansion. But again, these are not biological processes. These are not natural processes happening over eons. These are processes that happen in election cycles, that happen over periods of time while different groups come over based upon immigration and demographics and who can vote and who needs the vote and how power is going to maintain itself. When I talk about white people, I'm talking about the political party of white people or that is called white people. It's that feeling of whiteness that some have entirely and have had for generations and some have conditionally and whose grandparents and great grandparents would never understand how they felt. So in talking about whiteness, we're talking about a political party that maintains control, keeps capital and wealth safe, by always focusing on keeping down other groups. You mentioned the GI Bill being affirmative action. Was that toward whites? Because I heard the affirmative action was, uh, or that the GI Bill left out blacks. Yeah, by affirmative action, I meant affirmative action towards whites. Um, so a lot of the things that we think about as sort of American exceptionalism or the American way or the importance of the middle class are things that simply didn't exist before World War II. Um, so the idea of a, of a breadwinner sort of person in the way that we think about it now is actually just a couple, three, four, th three generations old in the way that we think about it. When I talk about the GI Bill, what I mean is those that were going to be included in white were allowed to buy houses on credit, um, have credit, 
a lot of this comes out of the New Deal, where the New Deal was explicitly racist in its housing policy. Um, there is a scholar named Rostein who actually does fantastic work on this. Um, but the idea is that by keeping Blacks and Latinos in particular out of housing that was available through the GI Bill and to keep them out of um, the educational system that otherwise was available through the GI Bill, you were able to build a middle class of these new whites. And here I'm including Asian Americans and Jewish Americans, although it would be conditional and it would be over time. Um, but they were allowed to live together. So you're going to hear stories when people talk about how they grew up of having neighborhoods where there were some Asian Americans, where there were Jewish Americans, and there were the other varieties of, of white Americans. But those government programs, even when they weren't explicitly racist in the way that they were written up, in the South, black people would have to go to these offices to find out where the jobs were, how to get in touch with these programs, how to use the GI bills. And they were just put off. They were told incorrect information, jobs would never be posted, educational resources would not be visible to them. And so what the GI Bill did is it created um, this connection again between the new white people who would buy houses at what today are fairly cheap things. So you could, for example, buy a house in Palo Alto um, into the late 60s, early 70s for 20, 25, 30, 35,000. Well, those houses are worth $2 million. That's how those people put their kids through private schools. That's how those kids end up going to colleges and having resources. Um, the wealth disparity between the black political group and the white political group is almost fully explainable by either the New Deal policies or the GI Bill. It was affirmative action for these now to be new white people. You also mentioned the, the Democratic Party needing voters and therefore bringing more uh, folks into the, the political party of whiteness. And what's interesting is that you see today, people would more likely associate the Republican Party with that party of whiteness. And I'm curious, how has that shifted and how has the Democratic Party been the, the party of, of inclusion? So I think one of the benefits of the political situation here in 2020 is that you can see just how fast the flips happen. So I can remember, I'm old enough to recall, when the Republican Party was anti-Russian. I can remember when the Republican Party was pro-CIA, pro-FBI. I see a Republican Party now that is like, well, why can't we be friendly with Russia? Why isn't autocracy okay? The FBI is full of people that we don't trust. The CIA needs to be dismantled as part of the deep state. And it happened in a flash. It happens in a flash. Because when power needs to move, <laughs> the fact that none of this makes sense doesn't, doesn't stop it from moving. So the Democratic Party was trying to expand. There were elements in the Democratic Party that were trying to expand 
to include, wait for it, African-Americans. So this would have been in the, in the early 60s. But there were elements of power that were like, no, not going to be able to do it. So as African-Americans started coming into the Democratic Party, elements of the Democratic Party moved over to the Republican Party. This is when Strom Thurmond goes from being a Democrat to a Republican, at least politically, apparently in his personal life, he was uh, a different, different you know, about how he did such things. Um, so these things flip when they need to flip. If you go back to the 1860s, the Democratic Party is the party of, it's pro-slavery. It's, and, and, and we should keep in mind, it's not like they just wanted slavery. They had an idea of the entire country and the entire world connecting on this system of enslavement. This was their political vision for how the global economy should operate. The problem is they kept losing elections and a lot of them were close, you know, and Abraham Lincoln as a Republican gets into office. So the Democratic Party needs a strategy to stop losing presidential elections. And this is even after the, the Civil War. So what they have to do is they have to go to the downtrodden, not white groups, immigrant groups that are flooding in from different places. And so they go to the Irish who were hated, who were seen as having African origins. When you watch, when you look at cartoons of Irish people drawn in newspapers of that time, they're not human in the way that they're drawn. But if you need those votes to maintain that power, then they can become white in less than a generation. In a flash, it can happen just like that. So it's interesting to remember that Lincoln was a Republican, and that's how certainly Trump can say that he, is, he belongs to the party of Lincoln. Uh, certainly that's in name only because the, the way that the Republican Party believed then and what they seem to believe now is, is, seems to be at odds, but it's odd to hear him use Lincoln's name in association with him, himself and the party that he's part of today. And to be honest, if we had just basic education in the history of the country, he could say it all he wants. It wouldn't matter. The problem's not that that guy who doesn't actually know anything um, says it, it's that so many people shake their heads in the affirmative because we simply don't teach these things. The other, the other thing that is really interesting that I want to bring back to is most people associate affirmative action with uh, black and brown people in particular. And, you know, you brought up an example specifically related to white people. And I just think it's interesting that we don't ever associate that affirmative action with anything but black and brown people, despite how much it really set up the generation after World War II, as you said, to to come in and, and kind of build their wealth. And that is um, just not the view that most people have today. And why, why don't we see that? Why don't people see that as affirmative action? So, so I think this is the power of not marking white. Um, so I've, I've been doing some work with different organizations. And one of the things you see is uh, if I suggest to them, uh, hey, 
you need black people in your senior leadership. Then I get the comment. Well, uh, that's just performative. Won't that be just obviously bringing somebody in from their skin color? Isn't that wrong? And I'm like, well, if it wasn't wrong for you to hire all these white people, why is it wrong to hire a black person? They see the racial intent of that one hire, and they don't see the racial intent of all the hires they've made in the past, which is kind of weird, right? Because then it's like, well, why is everybody here white? Well, we didn't mean for it to be white. Yeah, but everybody here is white. They absolutely cannot see it. You can point it out. You can show them a photo. They absolutely will not see it. You think black and brown people are as a group where they are economically because of what? There's really only two choices in the current framework. Either you've been keeping them down or they don't know how to get up. And if you don't see your active work to keep them down, if you don't see that you built your middle class on their bodies, on their blood, then you're only really left with, well, they don't know how to speak up for themselves. They don't know how to fight. They don't know how to behave. All of this violence, my goodness, right? All of their violence, because you cannot see your own. You don't see that at particular points, your people a couple of generations ago were allowed to come in and be white. They were allowed to come in and live with everybody else. And over a couple of generations, they worked hard and they got you where you are. And now when other people are like, hey, we would like that opportunity, all of a sudden that's racist. I'll tell you one thing that happened at UCLA. Um, when they were fighting against um, affirmative action at the UC system, you were bringing in through affirmative action in the undergraduate level, as I understood it, at most a couple of hundred um, African-American, I should say they're black and Latinx students. Do you have any idea how many students were there as what they called legacies, which is to say their parents had gone to UCLA and their parents had donated to UCLA and they were part of the alumni association. All of those kids, now we're talking thousands of kids all, all over the program, not in any particular class. And nobody said, hey, that's not fair. We've just had a scandal where people are paying for others to do SATs. They're creating sort of these false um, resumes or vitas to get their kids in. This is all part of an affirmative action program. When you can pay to have your kid take pretests of the SAT, when we know that that has an effect on your score, how are those pretests not an affirmative action program? Which is to say, it's not about merit where everybody's taken at the same time. It's about some people get a help in hand. When it happens for whites, it's just natural. It's unseen. When it happens for blacks and browns, we all see it and the fight is there. 
Could it be that 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 helping hand for the whites who are paying for their children to to take these tests, uh, that helping hand came generations ago, um, and that's how they have their wealth today, as opposed to some of the black and brown kids who may not have that wealth and therefore are looking for public assistance today. And I think I think a lot of the difference there is the public assistance today versus the public assistance generations ago that got those white people to where they are today to be able to afford it. Is it the, is it the recency of that public assistance that, that becomes the target? Yeah, there's two things. Let me see if I can keep them both, both in my head. Originally, all of this had to happen intentionally. The way they wrote the New Deal legislation and the way that they imposed the GI Bill was initially intentional. Over that first generation, it can become a thing where you don't need the intentionality of it. It becomes habit, just the way things are. And it really only takes a generation for something like that to happen. So it's initially intentional always. But by this time, people act, and I can't remember where I heard this quote. I think I read it in White Fragility, if I'm not mistaken. But people act like, privilege just came into their pocket. Like they're just in these boardrooms, they're just in these uh, leadership uh, meetings with all these white people and they didn't do a thing to make it happen. And so of course now they don't see it. But now let's talk about a second thing that I think is extremely important, which is what happened to the public space? So as we all know, tax rates were higher in the 50s uh, for, the, for the upper class. But by the 70s, you start to see them go lower. And now they're, um, I don't know if they're at historic lows, but they're quite low. The change is civil rights, the Civil Rights Act of 64, and in particular, the Fair Housing Act of 68. So once it was possible with the Fair Housing Act for people, for black people, brown people, to legally move into any neighborhood they wanted to, that meant that they would be in any schools that those neighborhoods served. And at that point, what you get from the Republican Party of that day is the notion that the public space is bad. You know, in the 80s, you'll get Reagan saying government is the problem and he just wants to cut taxes. That's preceded in his home state by Jarvis. Uh, and the taxpayer revolution, which basically dismantled one of the best education systems in the world because black and brown people were coming in. And so they stopped funding the public. And so even the notion of a public good, of public schools as a foundation of the country and the middle class, over 40, 50 years, say two generations, becomes a thing where now we actually vilify public school teachers as the problem. We want to break their unions because they are against us. So you just change the notion of the public. It's not, so it is in part that the intentional part of this happened earlier and so you don't have to see it. But the other thing is, if you didn't get into whiteness by the end of Eisenhower, they closed the door. They stopped the, the public money from coming and even if you got into those neighborhoods, you couldn't necessarily get into now the private schools that the other kids were gonna to go to. 
and they were going to defund those public schools. So in this concept of whiteness as a political group uh, that requires white people in power to make specific changes that, that keep others down, as you get the civil rights movement and uh, more, more equality, certainly not uh, total equality, but, but more equality for the black and brown people of the country, why do we not see um, a, a black and brown political group form? Why are those things not coming up and developing a power base in the same way that the, the whites have developed a, a, a power base there? So, so I would say There's some complexity to, to the answer, but I would focus on one thing first. Violence. These people would have gotten together. They have tried to get together. There are times when they've gotten together and even broadened that coalition to make it larger. But look at that civil rights movement, right? Go back to them being beaten on the bridge. Where is Martin Luther King? Where is Malcolm X? what happened to the Black Panthers, they're all murdered, right? There is a Black Wall Street. There was a Black Wall Street. What happened to it? My God, they dropped bombs on the place, right? You're looking at George Floyd's murder. This is a continuation of violence that started from the beginning of the country. If you don't get off their necks, what do you expect them to do exactly? Yes, you pass legislation and they can go to schools that you now defund and they can go to neighborhoods, but then you move out to other neighborhoods and those neighborhoods get more and more expensive and they can't get there. And their kids have no practice dealing with black people at all. And so they aren't hiring black people at all. What you do is you get, a, you get them ready for the SAT and then you send them to a college experience that's even more white than their neighborhood experience. And then they get hired by companies that are even more white than the colleges that they came from. They don't have anybody in their network to talk to. They don't even recognize it as something to miss. Meanwhile, they're paying taxes so that those police can go into those neighborhoods that they are so afraid of, even if they haven't seen them. And those police, through violence, keep those people scared, worried, telling their kids, hey, you have to be careful. Now, if you go into that neighborhood, if you come out of that neighborhood and you're taught, hey, you have to be careful at any time it could come because it could come at any time. You could be asleep in your house. The police could break in with a no-knock warrant and you could be shot eight times and killed and nothing will happen to those police officers. Now let's imagine that you get a job in say a tech firm in Silicon Valley. Can you speak up? Can you be yourself? It's clear these people don't know very many black people and there aren't many black people around, certainly not in positions of power. How do you even advance in an organization like that? You've made it where those within whiteness don't think they've done anything to keep it going don't feel like they have any particular intent. And so they can only find that you all didn't work hard enough, that you didn't do enough. You were given all this equality during the civil rights movement. And then you create black and brown people 
who, if they can get through that small pipe to get to you, are so worried about who you are, what you think, and how you act, that it's hard for them to be themselves once they get there. The system is perfect. Is there a way to have more of a balance in that power structure to break down that whiteness as a political group, to bring the, the black and brown people into a position of power? How, how does this happen? How can we change this dynamic? So I have to admit a certain um, cynicism. I agree with Ruth Wilson Gilmore's statement that capitalism requires inequality and that racism enshrines it. So I believe that racism and capitalism are intertwined. They are different parts of the same thing. However, and she would say this as well, I believe anti-black racism isn't necessary. They need some group to subjugate and exploit, but it wouldn't have to be black people or brown people. It's just sort of, that's how it worked out in Virginia at the time. And, you know, they made it work. If you go to places like Haiti, they had a mulatto population. If you go to South America, wow, the complexities of their racial dynamics, far different than the United States. You had to use sort of what was there at the time. This system worked in the 1600s, the 1700s, really through the 19th century, it worked here. I don't think it necessarily works here right now. So I don't know about fixing it in, in that sense. There is a way to sort of be, there's a way to make it different, make it better for a generation that's here. And so let me give what I think is the one thing that will change it. White people have to live with black and brown people. They have to not accept white spaces. That means they have to worship with black and brown people, not in separate parts of the, of the house of worship. They have to go to school with black and brown people and not have separate sections of the cafeteria that they're at. They have to live, they have to choose to live in neighborhoods with black and brown people. They have to change their lives and do the work of living with others, with those others that they've been taught not to live with. Residential segregation is the foundation of racial stratification in the United States. White people have the power right now, right now, right now to change it. They just don't want to. They'd rather have a book club. And redlining is certainly an element of that that's keeping that uh, uh, situation perpetuated. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, explicit redlining um, for so long. Now it's just people making good financial decisions about where to invest and how to invest that does it. And that's the beauty of it. It only has to be explicit for a while and then it becomes natural. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. 
Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media.